The following message has been brought to you by Trinity Baptist Church. For more information, visit us on the web at trinitybc.org. As you are seated, if you would open your Bibles up to Matthew chapter 10 this morning, I I do apologize, I am not Dr. Tommy Green. Uh, Some of you uh, paid attention to your bulletin last week and you saw that Uh, Dr. Tommy Green had planned to be with us this morning. He is the executive treasurer of the Florida Baptist Convention, Uh, but even more so than that, he is a faithful preacher of God's Word. I was looking forward to him being here, uh, bringing the Word this morning. He was as well, uh, but God foresaw differently. Uh, He had a heart attack uh, about a week and a half ago and had open-heart surgery last Thursday. Uh, Everything went well. Uh, To our knowledge, he is recovering from that. Please keep him in your prayers. Uh, But as such is the case, uh, we will continue our study through the Gospel of Matthew this morning as we've been walking now uh, for a number of weeks, verse by verse, through uh, the Apostle Matthew's recording of the life of Jesus Christ. Matthew chapter 10, we'll begin reading in verse 16, and I want us to look through verse 26 this morning. Matthew chapter 10. In verse 16, we begin reading, follow along as I read aloud. Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Therefore, be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. But beware of men, for they will deliver you up to councils and scourge you in their synagogues. You will be brought before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. But when they deliver you up, do not worry about how or what you should speak, for it will be given to you in that hour what you should speak. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father who speaks in you. Now brother will deliver up brother to death, and father his child and his Uh, Children will, will rise up against parents and cause them to be put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But he who endures to the end will be saved. When they persecute you in this city, flee to another. For assuredly, I say to you, you will not have gone through the cities of Israel before the Son of Man comes. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough. For a disciple, that he should be like his teacher, and a servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebub, how much more will they call those of his household? Therefore do not fear them, for there is nothing covered that will not be revealed, and nothing hidden that will not be known. What is the greatest persecution? that you have ever suffered personally for your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? As I sought to answer that question in my own life, I realized afresh and anew just how blessed we are to live in the day and age in which we live and in the country in which we live. Though undoubtedly there is a cultural attitude against Christianity that is rising up like it never has before in our recent modern American history, we still are so blessed and guarded from true and real painful persecution. That's not to say that we don't face light persecution. We do. There's light discrimination undoubtedly that occurs. There are people that 
just don't like you because they know you're a person of religion. They know you're a believer, even in your job perhaps. Some that, that discriminate against you. Some that just have an attitude of, of, of hatred even towards you for no real reason other than the fact that you identify with Christ. But I, I would beg to argue there's not anyone in here who's ever been drug out of their home and beaten because of their Christian faith. Nobody's been thrown in jail, nobody's been put to death, or even has a loved one who's been put to death because of their Christian faith. But we, uh, in a way, have it so well made that, that even as I sought to read this passage, this word that Jesus gave to his disciples in light of that first commissioning that he just gave to them, I, I struggled to, to pray and ask the Lord, how does this apply particularly to you and me today? How does this apply to us who live in the day and age in which we live where we really don't face that much persecution in comparison to those that are around the world and what some believers are facing even this morning? I'm thinking of the Michaels who are in India even this morning. Continue to pray for them as uh, Brother Jeff has already preached on a Sunday morning to a crowd that had gathered uh, where hostility and persecution is greatly on the rise there in India against believers. But for us, we gather without much fear of any intervention, any, any discrimination, even this morning in this room. We're not fearing a mob coming in to get us because we gather together in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're not fearing the police coming to arrest us and drag us before the courts. We are greatly blessed, and that's, there's nothing wrong with that. We're to use that blessing to the um, expansion of the gospel, the proclamation of the gospel, and even glorifying God in our abundance, just as we are to glorify God in our persecution. But as we read a passage that deals particularly with persecution, it is hard somewhat for us to identify with this word. And I realize that the disciples even, to whom Jesus is speaking in the immediate context of what they were going through, we're not yet in a time where they were even facing great persecution. Even in this first commission, from what we know about their first going out and, and sharing the word, they were healing, they were teaching about the kingdom that is to come, repent for the kingdoms at hand, and, and they really, according to the record we know of that first commissioning, of, of that first mission trip, so to speak, through Israel, city to city, they did not face great opposition like they would in the days that would come after the death, burial, and resurrection. And that leads me in a brief introduction of verse 23 to cover something that's very, very difficult that many commentators say is even the hardest verse in all of Matthew to understand and rightly uh, interpret. Verse 23 where Jesus says to his disciples, When they persecute you in this city, flee to another. For assuredly I say to you, you will have not gone through all the cities of Israel before the Son of Man comes. The Son of Man is a messianic title. The Son of Man is even an eschatological title. It's an in times title dealing with, with the work of the Messiah, the Son of Man who would come to be the King of kings and Lord of lords, who would rule and reign and judge and execute righteousness. And so we read this verse and we know Jesus has not yet even died upon the cross, been buried and raised again yet, and He's telling His disciples, you're not going to get through all the cities of Israel before the Son of Man comes. And there's multiple ways that the church throughout church history has understood this verse, what it applies to. Some believe it's an immediate word that just deals simply with the fact that Jesus would come to them before they completed their mission going through Israel and that day and age. But the Son of Man gives it a little bit greater emphasis than just the immediate context of what he's saying. Some refer it to the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. I'll talk about that in a moment. Some think it was AD 70 when the temple was destroyed. Some place it in an end-time scenario 
which I do also, that this also deals with the tribulation, the period of persecution that will be amplified in those last days before the return of Christ. What I believe, just really quickly, and we're not going to dive into it anymore because we could literally spend the whole morning on it, um, I believe throughout the Old Testament, whenever prophetic words are given, we see it evidence of, of a multiple fulfillment of prophetic words. It's called prophetic um, foreshortening. Where, where the prophets write in a way where they're dealing with an immediate application of what they write, and yet there's also a more distant application sometimes of what they're writing, often a fulfillment in the church, I would argue, as I will here. And then there's also an in-times fulfillment when, that deals once again with ethnic Israel and an in-time tribulation moment before the coming of Christ. And so there's many people that argue one or the other of those three options I just gave to you, and I say it's all three. If you've been with us on Wednesday night, you know I've got a little bit of a peculiar view on this, where I am uh, dispensational uh, in, in most of my views, but it's a progressive dispensationalism. I, I believe that, that there is an application immediately in the words of Jesus that deals with, you're not going to complete this first commission before the Son of Man comes, before I, I believe that's the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, before I die upon a cross and give my life a ransom for sinners and usher in the kingdom of God what has been foretold and, and planned before the time uh, even began, that the that, that Son of God would give His life a ransom for sinners and call a people of all nations unto Himself, but it revolved primarily upon ethnic Israel until that death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And the, the Son of Man comes in that moment. That there's a fulfillment there, but then there's a fulfillment in the church. That what's being written of here deals with the tribulation and the persecution even, that the disciples go through, especially in the early church, that God says the Son of Man will come before the mission's completed. You've got to read Mark 13 and Matthew 24 where a very similar passage is found. And there's a struggle to know if this is even a different context of, of the question being asked where the disciples say, teach us what's going to happen before the end comes. And, and the words are identical as far as, you know, parent rising up against child, a time of great persecution, um, instructions identical, but, but the word changes here from you will not make it through all the cities of Israel to you, you will not make it through all the nations of the world. And so I think there's a correlation here, and I've got to quickly move on to this, but I think there's a fulfillment there literally in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. There's a fulfillment in the church and the tribulation we're facing that, that the church will not come to an end before Jesus returns. The persecution will never stop out the church. We'll flee from city to city to city before the Lord comes. And so there's an application there, but then in an end-time sense. This does deal with a word to those who will be living in the last days, especially ethnic Israel in that last day of age of the great tribulation that precedes the, the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, where they will literally be going through fleeing persecution. And God says, you must endure because I'm coming. And before, before you're wiped out, I will come. In the end, those who endure will be saved. And so I hold that threefold application, one in the immediate context of the situation that you're dealing with, two within the church, and then three within Israel in an end times um, fulfillment. With that being said, I'm not going to dive into the first two because it doesn't really apply to us. My main concern is what does this mean to you and me today? What does this mean to you and me living in the day and age in which we live? And dealing with our following God through the life that he has called us to live. 
What we find here is that if Jesus has just commissioned his disciples to go forth and to proclaim uh, his his word that the kingdom of God is at hand, he's he's giving a stern warning to the disciples to realize this isn't going to be an easy task. That, that following Jesus, as he's already said in Matthew 8, he doesn't have a place to lie his head. The birds of the air have their nests and the foxes have their holes, but, but he has nowhere to lie, lay down his head. And the disciple that wanted to come after him then that he was speaking to wasn't, real, wasn't realizing what it meant to really follow Jesus. That following Jesus is not a life of ease, a life of prosperity in this earth, on this life. Jesus is warning it will be a life of, of opposition in the world. It will be a life where you need to beware, he says, verse 17, of men. Beware of people. Do not be so gullible into thinking everybody's good and everybody's for God and everybody's for the gospel and for a Christian morality. To realize as you follow Jesus and as you pursue the call upon your life that He's called you to and living for Him and believing as He's told you to believe and and speaking as He calls you to speak, that there will be people that hate you for it. That there will be persecution that will come upon you because of the fact that you are a Christ follower, because you are a disciple of Jesus. He says, beware of people. Be on guard. Be prepared for what awaits you. He says that there will be religious persecution, the councils and and the the synagogues, you'll be uh, persecuted there. He says there will be governmental authorities even that persecute you, the governors and the kings that you'll be brought before. He says, for my sake. He says even your own family might persecute you. I've seen it and I've heard testimony of it, especially in Muslim countries where Uh, a mother, a father, a child come to faith in Jesus and they are completely ostracized from the family. Some even put to death uh, for their belief in the Lord Jesus Christ that coming to Christ um, is a call to forsake all in light of Him. If then none uh, else follow, you, you follow, you follow the Lord, you follow Christ. And it will set mother against child, father against child, child against father. He says there will be a general Hatred, even from the society as a whole. Uh, verse 23, I believe it is, that all will hate you. Verse 22, rather, and you will be hated by my name, uh, by all, for my name's sake. All will have this hatred for you. Why? Because I, I, I was hated by them, Jesus said. They called me of the house of Beelzebub. That's a title of a Philistine city that was known as sort of the epicenter of the the literal translation would be Lord of the Flies. It's, it's satanic. It, it was the epicenter of satanic worship. And that's what they were attributing Jesus as doing his miracles through the power of Satan. You're just one who's in charge of the demons as a greater demon. They just con- uh, made that accusation against Jesus. And he's saying, listen, if they're attributing me, the very Son of God, as being a worker of Satan himself, and they're hating me and the, the goodness of what Christ was teaching and doing. He says, realize that if you are following after me, if you're a disciple of mine, the world will hate you as the world hated me. Charles Spurgeon once wrote, he said, Far be it from us to seek a crown of honor where our Lord found a coronet of thorns. 
But why do we think we'll get a crown of honor in the world that crucified our Savior? But if we're following after Him and we're living in His footsteps, we realize what awaits us is a cross, not not a crown of glory in this life in the broken, fallen world in which we live. It's a crown of glory that will come. But, but in the here and now, just as Jesus was persecuted, so will we be persecuted. Second Timothy chapter 3 and verse 12, Paul wrote these words to Timothy. He says, Yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. If you desire to live godly in Christ Jesus... Young person in here in high school, college student, you will suffer persecution. Now, it may not look like getting drugged and put in prison or drugged out to a, you know, a, a fire to be burned at the stake, but you will suffer some ridicule, will you not? Some mockery, maybe a bad grade here or there because they know you're a Christian and a believer. You will be ridiculed and, and slandered. There will be some light forms of persecution, even in the blessing of the day and age in which we live in this country with the rights that we're given in our Constitution. You, you still face some discrimination and persecution. All who desire to live godly will be persecuted in this life. Why? John says in 1 John 5.19, we know we are of God and the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. This world is not redeemed. This world is under the prince of the power of the air, under the wicked one, under Satan. And, and though people may not realize it, but are lost and unregenerate, but are deceived in their sin and darkened in their understanding because they've never come to the light of the gospel, they've never believed upon Jesus, they don't realize it, but they're the instruments of Satan. They, it's, it's so apparent when you just examine it, step back and examine it, the unfounded hatred of the Christian faith. If you just step back and examine it in cultures, and even in our culture, in our day and age, there's just an unfounded, un, un, no, no basis for it, hatred of Christianity, of things that are truly of God, truly of His Word. Why? Because the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. And so Jesus warns His disciples, Beware of people as you go out on this mission to live for Me, to serve Me, to proclaim My Word. And He gives us some advice on how we are to live in the midst of persecution. Notice firstly, verse 16, We must live wisely, yet with innocence. Jesus calls us to, to live with wisdom, but also live with an innocence, a, a purity, a holiness before Him. Now, you may be familiar with Winston Churchill. Now, the speeches that he gave during World War II that would stir the hearts of Parliament and even the nation to, to continue on and press forward during the war that would ultimately lead to victory. We, we know of great speeches in time past, and this is a great speech from our Lord Jesus Christ to motivate His disciples. And as we read it, we would expect Him to say, I send you out as giants. I send you out as giants in the midst of little weaklings. Maybe I send you out as a fire in the midst of stubble to go consume, as conquerors in the midst of those that will be conquered. It's something that would bolster their, their, their courage up and their boldness. That's not what Jesus says. Jesus says something a bit shocking. He says, I send you out as sheep amidst the wolves. Sheep. 
the only good quality that we think of when we think of a sheep is meekness. But Christ was as a lamb led before the slaughterer. He was meek because he had entrusted himself to the Lord. That's the imagery that is being emphasized by Jesus here. But I think there's, there's even more to it when you think of how defenseless a lamb is, a sheep is. A sheep doesn't have any means of attacking. A sheep doesn't have any any means of really even defending itself. The, the sheep is dependent upon the shepherd. And the sheep is only safe in its connection with the shepherd and the oversight and the care of the shepherd. And so sheep are, are unable to defend themselves. Sheep are not going out on the attack Sheep are not out to kill the wolves. Here's a good application. Sheep are there living under the protection, the guidance, the care of the shepherd, and they're meek. And then the wolf, on the other hand, the wolf is out to destroy. The wolf is out to kill. The wolf even has claws to, to snatch and and, 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 and cut and kill and teeth to, to devour. We are sheep, Jesus says, being sent out in the midst of wolves. The, the people around us are, are wolves seeking to kill and seeking to destroy. Why? Because Satan is the prince of the power of the air. He is the one who, whom this world is, is under the sway of. It says, therefore, verse 16, be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. Therefore, because you're like a, a sheep, and I'm calling you to be even a sheep in the midst of wolves, you need to also be a little bit like a snake. You need to be wise like a snake, shrewd like a snake, crafty like a snake. And you need to be innocent, harmless like a dove. Now, harmless as a dove sits well with us. We like to think about what a dove represents. I mean, even today it represents peace. It's, it's for multi-cultures and multi-generations represented purity, innocence, harmlessness. And so that, that, that we understand that, that God calls us to be, to be like a dove, to be like a sheep that is meek, but also one that is pure before God in all that we do, purity before God, and blamelessness before other people. That, that no one ought to be able to bring a valid accusation of wrongdoing before you or before me because of the lives we're living, because of the things that we're doing. We're called to be innocent, harmless, pure as a dove, blameless as a dove. But we struggle a little bit when we think about the old servant. Rightly so, Genesis chapter 3, correct? It was the serpent, Genesis 3 and verse 1. Same word is used in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament that's used here in the Greek that we just read when it speaks of wise as a serpent, crafty as a serpent, shrewd as a serpent. It's the same word in Genesis 3.1 where it says the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field. And it was the serpent that Lucifer uh, came into to bring the temptation to Adam and Eve. And so rightly so, it's got a very negative connotation upon us. But if I were to look at you and say, you know, Brother Scott, he's just a snake. Would that be a good thing? That would not be a good thing. It would be a derogatory, slanderous statement. But then we read here, Jesus is saying... No, there's a part of your living 
in a broken, fallen world that is seeking to devour and destroy you, that is seeking to, to be like a wolf to a sheep, in which you are to be like a snake. You're to have a wisdom about the way that you live your life and the things that you say and the things that you do and how you say them and how you do them, that, that you are, you're, you're almost like a snake with the wisdom and the shrewdness and the craftiness of it all. Now, a snake, a snake has long been known just as a dove in multicultures, multi-generations, as a symbol of shrewdness and craftiness. You know, a snake is camouflaged. It hides well. A snake knows to flee danger. It's not like a sheep that stands there in ignorance. A snake is, is crafty enough to wait when it needs to wait because it knows you don't see it. And crafty enough to run when it knows it needs to run because it knows you've seen it and it's in danger. I can remember it's been a number of years back and in a different house, praise the Lord, that I got up on a Sunday morning to come to church and, and right at our fireplace, it was this big brick fireplace, there was a, it was a green snake, thankfully, but his little head was poking out one of the little cracks in the rock that was, uh, the, the, that was big enough for it to get through. It wasn't very big, but I mean, I walked out in the living room and it's just there, you know, with its tongue going out, thinking, oh my goodness, what in the world do I do? I can't shoot it. I'm, I'm going to blow the, the, the brick apart. And I went in the closet, grabbed a golf club, and by the time I got back, the thing was gone. And believe it or not, we actually went to sleep that night somehow, but we searched and searched and couldn't find that thing. Why? Because it's crafty. It knows how to get away from danger. It knows when I'm going to get a golf club to swing at its head, and it got out of the way. That, that's the imagery that's not negative that Jesus is picking up here, that we facing a, a, a world that we need to be aware of. A world that we need to be on guard about because of the, the wickedness of it all, because they're wolves seeking to destroy us. That yes, we need to be innocent. We need to be pure in what we do. We need to be blameless before a lost and dying world. But, but we also need to use the brains that God has given to us. He doesn't call us to take our brain out and leave it aside as we follow Him and not think. He gives us a whole book, the book of Proverbs, on wisdom, on using our brain rightly, on, on navigating life with wisdom. We're called to be innocent like doves, but we're also called to be as sneaky, as crafty, as shrewd, as wise as a snake. And it's not one or the other. One or the other is dangerous. I can just think in pastoral ministry, I've seen some pastors that I would say are innocent as doves but they lack the shrewdness of a snake. They, they have a purity and even a holiness about them that I would long for even in my own life. That, but, but, but they have kind of embraced this Pollyanna view, Pollyanna view of, of people and of life. Like everything's just hunky-dory and, and everybody's going to love everything and you know be everything that they should be in, in Jesus. And unfortunately, often, that sort of person is one that gets so wronged so jaded that they, they burn out in ministry because they don't realize just how wicked people can be. And they're not guarding their life or guarding their ministry um, from it, holy, but, but just foolish in the way that they never imagined people could do what people do and never see things coming that were, were clearly coming because they, they, they didn't have the shrewdness of a snake. I've seen it opposite, that there are others who are shrewd as snakes but not innocent as doves. That's even worse, in my opinion, because if you're like that, you're like your father, the devil, to be shrewd as a snake and not have the harmlessness of a dove. That's the type of person that, 
is manipulative and power-hungry, out to make a name for themselves, and, and it doesn't matter the cost. There's a whole line of people that have been hurt and run over and bridges burnt in their history because they're shrewd as a snake, but, but they're, they're not innocent like a dove. And they are guilty. They are self-centered. God calls us to be both. To have the wisdom, the shrewdness of a snake in what we do, but also have the innocence of of, of a purity before God and all that we are and all that we're doing and and a harmlessness, a blamelessness even before men. A good quote I heard attributed to Adrian Rogers, don't give the devil a stick for him to beat you with. That's a good Adrian Rogers nugget of wisdom, isn't it? Don't, Don't give the devil a stick to beat you with. Sometimes in our foolishness, though the motives are pure and, and we're being innocent as a dove, just in, in ignorance, we'll, we'll step out to do something that, that literally gives the devil a stick to beat us with. Ephesians 5 and verse 15 says, See then that you walk circumspectly. Walk with examination, with your mind, ex- analyzing and examining everything, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time because the days are evil. Parallel verse in Colossians 4, verses 5 and 6, it says, Walk in wisdom to those who are outside, redeeming the time. Let your speech always be with grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how you ought to answer each one. I feel a lot of the persecution that we face as believers in our culture, in our day and age, is not necessarily because we're, we're living rightly for the Lord as much as it is. We're just gluttons for punishment. That we sometimes can speak in a way that's unnecessarily offensive. Say things that are unnecessarily offensive. And really it's not applying the right teaching of Jesus here. We're not being as wise as serpents and as innocent as doves. If Facebook and Twitter or X or whatever it's called now and email, just the, the video recordings of, of even every word I share from the pulpit and technology and how that can be so spread like wildfire in a moment, forums that are out there. We must be wise. We must be careful. Walk with wisdom circumspectly before a, 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 a bunch of wolves. Walk, walk before the Lord wisely, yet with innocence. Notice secondly, this is only two points this morning. Secondly, we must live boldly, yet with humility. Boldly, yet with humility. Verse 19, Jesus says, You're going to be delivered up, but when you are, don't worry. Don't be anxious about how it's going to go and what you're going to need to say and how it's all going to transpire. Why? He says, The the Spirit of your Father will speak through you. God is with you. Don't be so worried and fretting and fearful about what tomorrow might hold, even within our country. Speaking the other day to a lady with grandkids, and we were just talking about even me expressing my concern of my kids being raised in the day and age in which we live, and she was sharing that about her own grandkids, and we can get anxious about the way the world is going, but we don't need to, because God says, I'll be with you. God says, even when you are persecuted and they drag you before the courts, don't even worry about what you're going to say because the Spirit of God is in you and the Spirit of God will speak through you in those moments. 
Now, sorry, I'm sorry many preachers use this as a sorry excuse to not prepare to deliver a sermon. And they misapply this and they get up not having even prepared a message. And the Lord's going to give me by His Spirit the word that wants to be said to you this morning. That's not what Jesus is saying. We study to show ourselves approved unto God, rightly dividing the word of truth. I spent a lot of preparation preparing the word I'm delivering before you this morning. I pray the Spirit accompanies it, and the Spirit even formulated it in my heart before I give it to you. It is all of the Spirit, yes, but that is, this isn't a, an excuse for a lack of preparation. This is a word of comfort that when we are facing circumstances we never foresaw, and when persecution comes heavily upon us, that even in those moments, we're not to be anxious, we're not to fear. God's still with us, and God will speak through us. Verses uh, 22, he says, Endure, keep on keeping on, because in the end, salvation is ours. Those that endure to the end, guess what? In the end, God wins. Verse 25, he, he instructs us to be content with whatever condition God places us. We need to pause on this one for a moment. Look to verse 25. It is... Enough for a disciple that he be like his teacher. It is enough in the midst of your suffering, in the midst of your persecution, to be like Jesus. Period. If Jesus is the one who endured what he endured upon the cross and the rejection that he went through and the suffering that he went through to redeem you, so that you could be forgiven if He bore your shame and the guilt of your sin, is it not enough that, that you be like your master? That you be like your teacher? That you endure a little bit of persecution? A little bit of suffering? A little bit of hardship in this life for the glory that is to come? All oh, that we would remember this in the midst of our suffering, that it is enough to be like Jesus. Paul spoke of such contentment in his suffering when he wrote Philippians 4, verses 11 through 13. He said, I don't speak in regard to need. I've learned where whatever state I'm in to be content. I know how to be abased and to abound in everything and all things. I've learned to be full and to be hungry, to abound, to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. Write that passage down. Therefore we also... Since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, doing what? Looking unto Jesus. It is enough to be like Jesus. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who was for the joy that was set before Him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider Him, Think about him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. It is enough. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and a servant to be like his master. And then in verse 26, he says, Therefore you don't fear him, for what's covered up is going to be known, what's unknown is going to be revealed. That in the end, the truth comes out. In the end, God does win. In the end, He will validate and He will avenge all of His children. And the truth will be known. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I want to close by looking back to verse 18. Verse 18, it says, You will be brought before governors and kings for My sake, 
as a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. You're going to be persecuted severely, disciples of mine. You're going to be brought before governors and even kings. But you're going to be doing so as a testimony. A testimony of my namesake. A testimony of the Gospel. And it's going to be to them and to even the Gentiles. To the entirety of the lost world that surrounds me. You realize the disciples did not have evangelism explosion. They did not have the Billy Graham track steps to peace with God. They didn't have three circles. They didn't have any other evangelistic training aid. They didn't formulate a a, a five-step plan to reaching the Roman Empire, a a church growth strategy, a five-year vision to get the gospel throughout the the Roman Empire. You realize what they had was the gospel, and, and what God brought to them was persecution. They had the gospel. They had a a saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. The keys to to the gates of heaven even. The way in which fallen sinful man is to be redeemed and made one with God. They had the gospel. The story of God sending His Son to die upon a cross for our sins. That He was buried and raised again. They, They witnessed that. They knew the power of Jesus to save. They had the gospel. And then God brought upon them persecution. And you realize it was through their persecution that they were brought before Herod and Nero and Felix and Festus, that they stood before the governors and the powers of the the day, that they testified before them and before a lost and fallen world all around them that Jesus is Lord and Savior. God worked through the persecution that they faced to bring the gospel to the ends of the known world, that they were the ones who turned the world upside down for the sake of Christ, it was said of them. I don't want to glamorize persecution, but there is something, there's something powerfully true about what the early church fathers even realized. Tertullian in the 2nd century and Jerome in the 4th century wrote these words. Tertullian first, he said, The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. He came to realize, he he in an era of great persecution, that it is through the ones that are fed like sheep to the wolves. And yet, even as they're, they're being killed, there's a meekness, there's a wisdom of God upon them, there's a purity upon them, a holiness about them. That they have a wisdom and yet there's an innocence about them. That there's also a, a boldness about them, even with this humility that is beyond the reasoning of anybody watching, watching them. And you go all the way back to Stephen and you see it. Even the first martyr who was stoned to death. And even as he's being stoned, he, he sees the glory of heaven and, and Christ. And he even prays the prayer of Christ, Father, forgive them for they, they don't know what they do. And he commits his life to the, the Father even as he's being stoned to death. And it was through that testimony that many came to believe in the power of the gospel to save. That the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And then Jerome wrote in the 4th century that the church of Christ has been founded by shedding its own blood not that of others, by enduring outrage, not by inflicting it. Persecutions have made it grow. Martyrdoms have crowned it. But there's something true about God bringing persecution upon the church, and when it comes, 
It does not destroy the church. It actually sanctifies the church. And it actually is the way, the furnace even, that God uses to, to grow the church in, in ways that were never even thought possible. That we are to hold with Peter when he wrote, don't think it a strange thing when fiery trial has come to try you as though some strange thing happened to you, but rejoice to the extent that you partake in Christ's sufferings. That you share in the sufferings of Christ. And just as Christ has been glorified in His sufferings, so is the church expounded even through her sufferings. Perhaps we should not lament so greatly the rising persecution of the American church. Maybe, just maybe, the rising persecution of the American church is going to be her saving grace. And as it is for the church at large, it is for you and me even this morning and this week that we don't shy away from persecution. That we don't run in cowering fear. That we live with wisdom, yet with innocence. We live with a boldness, a confidence, a courage in the Lord, and yet a humility because we know we are but a sheep and He is the great shepherd. Heavenly Father, we come to You and I pray You would take a a difficult word that You've given and, and help us to leave here being doers of Your Word and not just hearers only. Lord, to leave here having been edified and encouraged and instructed by it. Lord, we are blessed that we have such freedoms and privileges as we do. May we use those for Your glory. May that not lead us to to apathy and complacency as it so often does, but may we be as just on, on on fire, as on mission as we would be if we were being persecuted. Lord, as we face even a growing persecution, may we not cower and shy away from it. May we not act as a wolf and and return evil for evil. Lord, may we follow you as you call us to do here. And to live with wisdom and innocence. To live with a courage, a boldness, and yet a humility. Lord, work, I pray. Sanctify us in Jesus. If there be any here that don't know you as Lord and Savior, may they even turn now and find you a God who saves, I pray. In Jesus' name.